being long-term greedy hmm. is the hardest thing about entrepreneurship because hmm. most people have started a lifestyle. Hmm. They, they worry about their kids, their college, their mortgage, hmm. their cars, all this stuff. How are you doing? Very good. Excited about new beginnings. Wow. Uh, we've known each other for almost 30 years now. Yeah. And to really sit here next to each other. Uh, I remember you used to sit uh, next to each other on trains. Back <laughs> here, going back from our school to our uh, hometowns. Hometowns, yeah. And 30 years later. Yeah. It's been an uh, amazing friendship and uh, we've learned a lot from each other and hopefully we'll continue to do so in this process. Absolutely. Grateful. Grateful yeah. for the friendship and the camaraderie and the learnings. I mean, you're such a great mentor to me and many things uh, that uh, require deep understanding. And this whole uh, podcast that we're starting now, um, it's about learning from each other and from the rest of the world out there and reading a lot. Effortless. Uh, say more. What's uh, effortless about it? Uh, so I think... Uh, to me, um, entrepreneurship is usually portrayed as you're rolling a big rock up the hill and it's all about effort, effort, effort. And some of the things that I've been learning from you and in general, it's like there, there is an aspirational way of pushing that rock up so that you're still putting a lot of effort, but it feels more effortless. And hopefully through this process, we can learn a little bit more about it and help others learn as well. What do you think? Uh, you came up with the name, so you must have an interesting theory behind it. Well, I'm in love with the word. <laughs> as you can see, our conference is yeah. also named Effortless. Um, I used to like the word frictionless, hmm. but friction somehow has more of a negative connotation than the hmm. word effortless and it's a much shorter word. Big fan of Greg McEwan. I mean... Hmm. Um, learning essentialism a lot uh, over the last 10 years you know, or more maybe uh, as part of uh, doing uh, my last company and now doing this one eventually a lot of it is really about design you know designing our lives our companies our organizations our day-to-day -day. Hmm. and design is about reducing friction and you know having the joy of working on things that are hard to begin with and yet uh, you know, the fact that it's so joyous mm. makes it look effortless. And eventually it's about uh, the end result and for the customer and the people and the end user and how do you make lives effortless for them. Mm. You know? mm. So big fan, you know, and I look forward to making this uh, podcast equally effortless with you. Mm. Um, as somebody was asking me recently about starting companies, mm. um, you know, being an entrepreneur, I mean, obviously, these are all monikers, uh, but uh, if we can actually use this podcast to really make uh, not just our lives a little mm. bit more full of learning, but also the audience. Um, who do you think the audience is? So I was going to take a leap of faith and say there are going to be some people who don't know us. So maybe it might be good to introduce ourselves very quickly. Let's do that. Let's yeah. do that. So Amit, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 
I guess what most people know me for is being a co-founder at ThoughtSpot, uh, which is an analytics company. We've been building that for the last 11 years. Before that, I was uh, one of the engineers in machine learning teams at Google. And before that, I started uh, as part of the beginning group that built the Bing search engine. Um, yeah. And uh, we basically overlapped at our undergrad yeah. and our grad school together. Yeah. Uh, you know, both IIT Kanpur and yeah. UT Austin. Yeah. Um, I was also a PhD student, although uh, I don't know if I was clever enough, but you were actually smarter and wiser enough to finish your PhD. <laughs> and uh, I went in a leave of absence and never returned to finish uh, my PhD itself. But the two of us know each other for that long. Uh, then for the next 10 years, I built distributed systems. Uh, I mean, the... Uh, I would say the recurring theme was uh, distributed system software and commodity hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, during the bubble and after the bubble burst and a little bit longer, it was about file servers, uh, managing data. Uh, then it was Oracle Database, Oracle mm-hmm. Rack, Oracle Exadata. Again, the, the recurring theme was software and commodity hardware. Oracle had gotten into commodity hardware for mm-hmm. the first time um, with Exadata. And then, of course, uh, Astrodata, which was another distributed data warehouse mm-hmm. company. Again, you need software to build large SQL farms with commodity hardware underneath. And then applying those lessons to Nutanix since 2009, um, I was the co-founder and CEO of the company. You know, we took it public in 2016. I was a public company CEO for you know, close to five years. And, and finally doing this uh, new company, DevRev, uh, which is really the last, I would say, uh, 12, 15 years of learning about design. Um, we, uh, my wife and I have been married for 23 years. Uh, we have uh, three kids. Uh, yeah. How about you? What's your personal life like? Yeah, so my wife is a doctor and professor at Stanford. And we have an 11-year-old who is really the center of our life. And, beautiful, uh, beautiful. So let's make something that yeah. even they can listen to, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know, I'll leave it to you because, you know, we have to do this uh, in a way that is also a little bit reflective of uh, us as well because, yeah. you know, a lot of time has passed, so I'll pass it on to you. Uh, yeah, so l- let's come back to your question about who do you think the audience is. Um, I think for me, um, it's obviously us because mm-hmm. we have to read a lot. Yeah, this, yeah. You know, and that is a forcing function for learning. Yeah. Uh, and because we have to do a good job with our audience, it's their time that yeah. is precious. Uh, but it's about founders, it's about uh, entrepreneurs, it's also about uh, folks who actually are not just dabbling in AI but want to get deeper mm. into AI to mm. really monetize AI, yeah. um, to teach their children about AI. Uh, because I think lives have changed. I mean, after the internet, um, back in 93, 94, the Big Bang happened. And uh, with HTML and the Mosaic browser and um, and all this, I think, because there was networking mm. for those 30 years mm. before that, you know, mm. it was TCP IP stack mm. was since the 60s and 70s. Mm. But then there was the browser and the mm. rest is history. Mm. I think the chat uh, GPT, mm. Uh, consumerization of AI has really mm. been that mosaic browser in some sense, you know. So the next 30 years are going to be different for our children as well. Mm. 
So if we can age uh, more gracefully and, you know, really learn to understand that there's a bright side of AI, there's a dark side of AI, just like there's a bright side to most other things like the internet and the discovery of fire and and, uh, atomic energy and everything else. I think, I know we can get into uh, both sides of the AI aisle, but if we can actually go and um, provide all that learning for our uh, audience as well, that'd be great. Product managers, uh, designers. I mean, I'd love to learn from design people. So if you can get them to actually listen in on this, that'd be great as well. How about you? Yes. So definitely all those things, but I learn a lot about entrepreneurship from you. And so I hope to learn a lot more about that and product management and from the guests that we bring on. Yeah, which is actually a very big piece of this puzzle as well. You know, while we actually carry Mm -hmm. this through for the first uh, several episodes, I think you've got to learn with uh, with uh, guest speakers. And when I'm traveling, you know, you do this. Uh, and when you're traveling, I do this. I think you can do a really good job with, uh, with learning with guests as well, you know. Um, so, yeah, let's let's start the first episode. I mean, it's uh, definitely an inaugural one in many ways. And yeah. uh, I mean, we're going to be a little bit awkward and a little bit uh, natural. And hopefully we actually warm up to this uh, over the coming episodes. Yeah. Um, so I think we were talking about this first episode being about getting started or jumping mm-hmm. off the cliff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask you, I think, um, you probably took the first leap of faith 20 years ago or something like that, right? Um, where do you define the beginning of your entrepreneurship career and, uh, what was it like? You know, a lot of it is also risk-taking hmm. at large. I think when I was 17, I took my first big risk in life, uh, 16, 17. Um, when I went to uh, IIT, which is the Indian Institute of Technology, uh, the same campus that you and I went together with, uh, too, um, I, for the first time that I took the joint entrance exam, um, which is the all India exam for JE, I got a rank of 1,420 mm-hmm. and I really wanted to get to the Kanpur campus and I figured I'll actually get there and maybe get a major brand change to computer science over the next year if I really had a perfect score mm-hmm. over two semesters. And after two months, I figured the probability of actually getting computer science is lower than if I went back mm-hmm. and retook the exam. And I, I basically quit after two months. And everybody was like, wow, really? The bird in hand, yeah. you're quitting this for the two in the bush. But I did uh, quit and I went back and retook the exam, sitting at home for another six, eight months. Um, and I really got into top 100. You know, mm-hmm. My rank was 84. I got in computer science. And I think this was 1993, the start of the internet era. And uh, computer science was a great major to actually be learning from and with. And that was the start of my entrepreneurship in many ways, you know. Mm. Um, my wife and I actually met each other online in 97. Mm. Mm. We never knew each other. We had just bumped into each other on a chat site. And before long, we realized we were actually going to get married. It took us two, uh, three and a half years uh, of long-distance dating to get married. A lot of it was also entrepreneurship because <laughs> we were doing this uh, long-distance for three and a half years. And of course, uh, you know, the fact that I didn't go to join Microsoft twice mm-hmm. in the year 2000 and instead joined this very small company that Vinod, uh, he was still at Klein Perkins back then. Mm-hmm. He had funded this distributed file server company. 
Zambil, right? Zambil, yeah, um, was uh, I think one of the earliest acts of entrepreneurship for me mm. because here I was, I just uh, my, uh, you know, I had joined Oracle, I joined mm. Trilogy in '99, so mm. I was always about smaller companies, mm. and then here uh, twice in 2000, I didn't join Microsoft. I literally drove from Texas to California, uh, mm. took the left turn rather than the right turn to Seattle, and. Um, I think uh, the company didn't go too far, but there were like six, seven of us developers and just young out of school. Uh, the company had hired well. And um, we all went on to do very good things. I mean, the combined enterprise value of uh, a lot of the developers uh, from Zambil uh, that we created over the next 15 years was close to $20 billion, you know, and that speaks about camaraderies and companies and, you know, how you learn from each other. Um, so that was also quite entrepreneurial, you know, having gotten married in the year um, 2000 and going through the bubble burst mm -hmm. and so on um, was actually uh, quite something as well, you know, but mm. just keeping your heads down, hunkered mm. down, learning, 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 not worrying about mm. how everything around you is melting mm. down uh, was actually very important as well, you know, early in life. And then, of course, uh, 2000 seven happens uh, 2008 uh, the Lehman crisis and the global financial crisis and right in the midst of 2009 we start a new company mm. um, I think was again very much uh, the first big act of entrepreneurship mm. and, and risk taking and you know thinking about the two in the bush rather than the board mm. in hand and the reason was fairly simple that look the worst is not bad enough you know mm. I've always had this thing about look you always have a decision tree mm. and mm. you look at this thing about the, the worst uh, case mm. and the worst is not bad enough, why wouldn't you do it? So actually, let's take a pause here. T take me to that decision. What was it like? Because um, it's easy to talk about it in retrospect and make it sound like it was the rational thing to do. But I'm sure when you were making the call, there was a lot of trepidation and uh, pounding of chest. Yeah, um, I mean, more than anything, it was really a decision that my wife and I took together. Mm -hmm. uh, there was another decision of saying we'll also go and, you know, start a family, you know, yeah. not just uh, the two of us, because for nine years before that, mm -hmm. we were like, okay, let's just have, um, you know, some us time, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, after our marriage. And so there were two things, like starting a company and starting a family mm -hmm. uh, at the same time. Um, I mean, being the Bay Area, the, the thing that, you know, it's a, it's mm -hmm. a real, uh, I mean, it's cliche to say this, but it's a land of opportunity. Mm -hmm. and you can always go back and walk into a job mm -hmm. because you've sort of fundamentally built a foundation of software engineering, software mm -hmm. development, design, mm -hmm. architecture, all these things. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a way to walk back into a, into mm -hmm. a job. Mm -hmm. So given all that, uh, and the fact that we're paying the tax here anyway, mm. or whether it's uh, the weather tax or California tax, um, might as well go and, you know, roll the dice. And I think that's, that's basically what was going on in my head. And my wife and I basically said, look, let's just go and do this, you know. And I keep mentioning her because at the end of the day, entrepreneurship is really a partnership, you know, because mm. then we had our first child and then mm. uh, over the course of the next four years, the second, uh, you know, twin mm. girls. So, mm. I mean, I mean, being able to really raise the kids uh, while you were actually 
waging a war against the competition of incumbents mm. so required a partnership of that kind as well mm. Mm. and it was it was good mm. so would you say uh, knowing what you knew back then it was kind of the obvious choice or what were you trading off um i know i've always pursued autonomy hmm. uh for some reason i'm just driven by autonomy hmm. and i think the idea of uh, even quitting oracle and going hmm. back to data was about more autonomy hmm. uh and i i think you look look at the book drive you know hmm. dan pink's book hmm. it says it's a three-legged stool motivation is a three-legged stool hmm. autonomy mastery and purpose i mean hmm. just beautifully the way it's put hmm. Hmm. um and if you would pick one i would say uh to me uh autonomy actually is hmm. the big one you know hmm. uh, of course you need to really finesse your things and that's why mastery is hmm. so important but also hmm. purpose but at the core of it was why wouldn't i make some autonomous decisions hmm. Um, hmm. and uh i think uh in fact the three of us when we started mechanix the the whole trigger was could we bring sql and no sql together mm. and there was a pretty long strategic uh, discussion and we realized that we couldn't do that so might as well go and do something of our own mm. took us six months to make that call but uh you know it was the in the height of the global financial crisis uh you know purse strings were actually tight both from mm. the customers and the investors uh but i think it was also in hindsight great timing you know maybe we were rationalizing all this that you know the best companies started in mm. recessions going back to 1992 and looking at companies like netapp and others that mm. we used to look up to back in the day mm. to you know even vmware and google the year 2000 i mean obviously they're a couple of years old by then um to uh so many other companies that really redefined the world in recession because by the time the product was built the market had started to open up for them mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. first strings opened up and that's what happened with us too like by mm-hmm. 2011 2012 the person mm-hmm. started, started to open up mm-hmm. and this is the best time because mm-hmm. now you're not just making tactical choices about product mm-hmm. and design and longevity and long term decisions and so on because mm-hmm. when the markets are actually closed is when you can actually with a handful of innovators and early adopters build something mm-hmm. that is scalable reliable available mm-hmm. and uh, low friction. Hmm. So uh, I think there was no trepidation per se. I think hmm. um I was less driven by money hmm. than by autonomy. Hmm. And to say that look uh the only thing that differentiates hmm. us from the folks who actually you look up to hmm. is being able to really cross this chasm. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of us who want to do something hmm. but only a few of us can pull the trigger hmm. that's the hardest part about entrepreneurship hmm. uh, it's and it's not crossing the chasm uh, in the sense of what we are taught in schools hmm. and business schools and so on it's really about saying letting go of what you have hmm. Hmm. and do you have the courage or the audacity to let go of the thing hmm. right now hmm. you know being long term greedy hmm. is the hardest thing about entrepreneurship because hmm. most people have started a lifestyle hmm. they they worry about their kids their college 
the mortgage, hmm. the cars, all the stuff. Hmm. And then that is what basically, you know, uh, binds you in hmm. many ways. Hmm. Hmm. So, um, the, the thing about taking risk is that you have to embrace both sides of the risk. Were you, were you thinking about downside at all or were you only focused on the upside and like, I don't see a path towards the downside at all? Um, you know, there's uh, one of my favorite mm-hmm. songs uh, is Chris Stapleton's uh, Starting Over. Mm-hmm. And there's a really uh, good line in there. Uh, Nobody wins, or I'm just paraphrasing, mm-hmm. uh, afraid of losing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's this schizophrenia that Mm. actually drives entrepreneurship Mm. Uh, and I mean in a positive way you Mm. know um, it's this cognitive dissonance that you need to have really balance the paranoia and the optimism Mm. 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 because it's a tight rope I mean every day you wake up I mean you have to really be both Mm. Mm. because if you're too optimistic Mm. then you don't just do a bad job with your company because mm. of product management decisions mm. or because of raising money decisions mm. or you know capital allocation decisions. Um, but in many ways, even individual deals with customers and mm. so on. Mm. You know, and you know when you hire people mm. and, and all this stuff, mm. um, I think in many ways uh, doing this at DevRev now, you know with Manoj, uh, I feel like. You know, we are bringing that yin and yang every day hmm. to paranoia and optimism. Hmm. Uh, and you've got to have that, you know, sort of a tightrope walk hmm. feeling every hmm. day, every week, every month. Hmm. Um, and it's the hardest part of entrepreneurship. Hmm. Is how do you really balance the opposites hmm. of uh, long-term, short-term paranoia, optimism, hmm. um, you know, thinking about having a global distributed company and yet mm. thinking locally about each cluster. Mm. Um, you know, the fact that it's a mm. sprint, but also a marathon of mm. sprints. I mean, I can go on and on and talk about these opposites, yeah. but it's this opposite thing, you know, that you have to really balance mm. in your mm. head that is the hardest part about entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to me, starting is kind of two tightly coupled things. One is getting yourself to quit what you have and the other one is having sort of enough of conviction to jump into the void and say like I'm gonna find a landing place when did you uh, so maybe switching mm. gears a yeah. to you um, you had that bird in hand yeah. at yeah. Google and uh, you know you were doing really well yeah and a lot of people out there who are doing really well mm. uh, think hard about this too. What was that decision like? You know, mm. you know, really when Ajit uh, and you met for the first time. Yeah. What was the decision like to let go of some, go, something that was going so well to come in? And why? Why was that uh, thing so seamless? Yeah, so for me, um, I, I was at Google and I was doing really well. Um, my small team was contributing hundreds of millions of dollars in Google's top line through machine learning improvements and so I was compensated well for it Uh, and to me a lot of decisions become easier by putting the right frame around it right so so one frame around it could be that 
I have so much to lose here. And so why would I take something uncertain? Um, but the other frame around it was that if I'm doing so well, that affords me the luxury of taking risks because I've been able to save a little bit and I know my market value as an employee so I can come back to it. Uh, so it was a different framing. So as far as... What, so, what about the money in the bank? Yeah, yeah. Because there's this comfort that you get yeah. about building building your, uh, you know... Uh, you know, worth and your, um, you know, wealth that you need mm. for your family and, you know, really helping uh, build some guarantees mm. around your life. How hard is that comfort to let go of that comfort? Yeah. So I think um, that there are a couple of ways that I, I thought about it. One was that, let's say if I take this leap and things don't work out. I will know if things are going really south, maybe in a year's time. And I can come back to maybe not the exact same job, but something similar. Um, so in that sense, yes, there was a downside, but it was bounded downside. So you think like control risk taking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably um, takes a couple of years, I would say two to three years to even know where this, anything yeah. is headed. But you're saying in the big scheme of things, uh, maybe one other thing around longevity. Yeah. Not of life, but of careers. Yeah. I feel like one has to work in their 80s and 90s uh, anyway. Yeah. What do you have to say about that? You know, is it because we also feel like two to three years is nothing in the big scheme of things that um, that also lends itself to actually taking risks in life? Definitely, there's an angle to that, and and as time progresses, the those windows seem much shorter and less significant. I, so, so I had a similar journey as you, where the first year I didn't get a great rank, and so I appeared in JE again and got in second wow, year. Man, I think we have more things. <laughs> and uh, and I agonized over that loss of one year so much. I like how would it feel to be one year junior to people who I call my peers mm-hmm, and things mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I guess 10, 15 years later, that one year seems like nothing. And, and, and you said it takes two, three years. And that's where I think a little bit of naivete helps entrepreneurs a lot. Because at least at the time, I thought that like, if things were really going to go south, I'll know within a year. Mm-hmm. And if they're going mediocre, then maybe I'm not losing too much in terms of mm-hmm. opportunity cost. You know, uh, I feel like there's a little bit of a... Um, dissonance or paradox here within the Western societies, at least American sort of teenagers who actually take a year off to backpack yeah. and just enjoy life. I mean, yeah. I see the Israelis do this they, yeah. you know, after their uh, three years of mm. draft, they go and you know spend time. Mm. While on the other hand, and this these are highly capitalistic worlds yeah. where there's a lot of uh, zero-sum sort of thinking yeah. and formulaic thinking going mm. on uh, about profit and loss and so on. Mm. And yet you have, you know, you're coming from these Eastern societies where mm. it's like you've got to be, uh, you know, as young as possible to finish yeah. your undergrad. Yeah. Do you see a paradox in, in, in the way we've actually, we used to think about, oh, a one-year loss. Yeah. And what happened at <laughs> one year over time. So this is a very interesting um, theory of, um, theory in psychology of shared development. There's a, 
there's a, a professor in Berkeley um, who's a podcast I was listening to, and she was saying that the reason human beings got to be so much smarter than other animals is because we have a prolonged childhood. Uh, we get, like, even before sort of having all the sort of innovations that makes human life easier, we got like four to five years of undirected exploration and that caused all kinds of connections in our brains that other animals can't because within a few days or a few weeks they have to go find for themselves and find their own food whereas for us we get this four or five year period where parents are taking care of your basic needs and you're just free to explore and that forms those connections. So I, I think there is definitely something to this idea of taking your time as you're growing up and building all kinds of connections. But I think the place that we came from, I think um, a lot of thinking was around, you have to make it out of this. Otherwise you'll be stuck, as our parents used to say, like study, study, study. Otherwise you'll be washing dishes and cutting mm-hmm, grass mm-hmm, mm-hmm, somewhere. And obviously we only had two forks, like either be a, an engineer or be a doctor. Or yeah. Or third option. <laughs> you see as societies uh, start to self-actualize, like mm-hmm. in India now and when we were growing up in the 80s and the early 90s, there were only two jobs back then. Yeah. And now there's so much more entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. You know, in my department, uh, so many people came to the U.S. You know, mm. a large proportion of our department actually came to the U.S. And these days, I think maybe 10% barely want to come over for a PhD because you still have the best uh, research institutions here compared yeah. to anywhere in the world. But if you're not pursuing a PhD, you probably are staying back in India and starting a company. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think is different? I mean, when we were growing up and we obviously took our time to start companies. I mean, I started uh, my first one when I was 34. Yeah. You probably did something uh, when you were what? Uh, close to 40, I think. Close to 40? Yeah. Uh, I thought I was going to say 25. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. But I think those things uh, have become a lot simpler mm. and left shifted mm. in some sense, you know. Yeah. Um, is there anything different going on with uh, when we were growing up in mm. India and now? I, I, I think this, this idea of being an entrepreneur was a really remote one when at least the circumstances I grew up in. Um, for my family, um, so my grandfather ran a grocery store of sorts. Actually, um, um, he was selling cereals and things like that. And my dad pulled himself out of that and studied engineering and became a professor. And for us, doing business was like going down, right? And it was looked down upon. And this idea of being an entrepreneur and starting a business was really a strange one. And I didn't come to appreciate it until sort of coming to this country and looking up to other people who had done things like this. And like the fact that you'll be starting a tech company one day was just unheard of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in fact, my father would say, just don't leave a salary job, yeah. you know, because uh, that's all they did was, yeah. uh, you know, based on salaries. And entrepreneurship was basically saying, it looks like you couldn't manage a job, therefore yeah. you're doing business or something, yeah. higher <laughs> risk. Uh, it is fascinating how things have changed yeah. dramatically. I also feel like... Uh, 
design has taken a much bigger sort of um, uh, role to play now mm. uh, than it was 20 years, 25, 30 years ago. There's so many great designers that are coming out of uh, really good schools in India yeah. as well, you know. Um, speaking of which, I think mm. along this, uh, when we talk about mm. AI and we talk about many things on entrepreneurship, mm. I think we should talk about the US-India corridor as well. Mm. I'm mm. really excited about how these two democracies uh, mm. and the people of these mm. two democracies uh, are going to really go back and forth in non-stop flights and, yeah. you know, in highly anglicized worlds, you know, this, uh, I mean, two largest democracies in the Anglosphere, mm. which are highly appreciative of computer science and, um, you know, design and, and product building and so on. I think there's something really exciting happening in this corridor. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, of course, this is something that's helped us grow and uh, both personally as well as build our businesses. And uh, I think some of the early investment that Indian government made in engineering schools has been sort of an amazing boon for our uh, you know, country. Yeah, in fact, I, I look back and, you know, people ask mm. me sometimes and I ask myself, like, I'm such a hardcore capitalist now. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes when we were growing up, we used to bemoan this idea of socialism in India. But mm. I felt like the first 40 years needed that kind of uh, redistribution of wealth and you know the abolition of uh, princely states and all that mm. stuff to really mm. get to the, that foundation on top mm. of which capitalism could be built. Mm. Um, I mean, it's like starting a company you mm. have to build a great foundation in those mm. first couple of years. A platform has to be mm. built. And I think the 90s was probably the first time where the platform could... I mean, there was no bloodshedding in a mm. civil war of sorts. I think mm. power transferred, you know, and obviously a lot of intermingling happened mm. and so on. So I feel like uh, the US-India corridor could be a great thing for us to talk about in terms of entrepreneurship and leverage and arbitrage of mm. all kinds, you know. Uh, I'm really excited. I mean... In our last company, it took us four years to even start to leverage India. I mean, this time mm. around, we are leveraging not just India, but Slovenia and Argentina and places mm. like that. It looks like the world is flat. Yeah, you know? yeah. When yeah. you think about uh, a global company from day one. I know, you know, you were starting a new company now. Yeah. Maybe speak a little bit about um, another letting go, going from ThoughtSpot to doing this new thing. A seventy nine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the genesis of the of the name? <laughs> so the way I tell people that it's a code that you should crack. <laughs> it's it, it's a code that represents artificial general intelligence. Um, Fascinating man. Like you know you you uh, you know I, I knew there was a nerd in you, but <laughs> <laughs> but to actually bring that to the brand is quite something. <laughs> Yeah. Um, tell us a data nerd joke, maybe that might be an interesting way to <laughs> open this up. And AGI A seven nine dot AI. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Let's start with a, a data nerd joke or something. All right. So um, for the last ten years at Thoughtspot, I have obsessed over this problem of allowing um, non technical experts to be able to ask data questions. People who don't know how to write SQL enable them to ask questions that are required SQL. So with that background, let me ask you this. Why do you think 
Tom Cruise took almost 36 years to create the next Top Gun movie, the Mavericks movie. 36 years. The, the time it passed between Top Gun uh-huh, 1 and uh-huh, 2. Uh-huh. I'm trying to think about the math uh, behind 36. I don't know, it's 6 square. And, uh... No, so here's the deal. For the longest time, he couldn't find anyone in his team who could write the sequel. See? <laughs> <laughs> Man, that was a good one. That was a good one. I started going down this path at 36. <laughs> That's a really good one. You know? We'll talk a lot about sequel as well, you yeah. know, because the more things change, the more they remain the same. Even with the AI, there'll be yeah. so much text to sequel. But it's, it's fascinating. I mean... Um, Speaking of uh, A79, you know, it probably was tough for you to let go of, uh, you know, your baby for 10, 11 years and really think about the second baby now. Yeah, Uh, yeah. How was the feeling? What was the decision like? Yeah. How difficult was it? And, um, you know, how did you wake up the next day and say, I'm now... Amit Prakash at A79 as opposed to Amit Prakash at ThoughtSpot.com. Yeah, so um, it's it's a bug that was there for a long time. Mm -hmm. And while I've been fully committed to making ThoughtSpot successful, um, there was this itch to go create something beyond ThoughtSpot. And what was hard about it was that, you know, as entrepreneurs, we make a lot of promises and bring a lot of people along with those promises. And uh, I felt committed to people who had come along for the journey to say, I'm doing everything I can, not just for my own success, but for your success. And... um, I just didn't feel comfortable for the longest time to say that, like, I have done what I could do here and now it's time for me to start something else. Mm. So there was a lot of other things to let go of, like, you know, being an exec at a company that's already sort of made it in some sense mm-hmm. to going down to, like, one person and getting validation for your idea of raising a seed round and things like that where like you have to reset your mindset and mm-hmm. no, that's a very important piece of the puzzle I mean yeah. and people think that doing a second time um, you know you're just gonna it's gonna be a cakewalk yeah. in the book Innovation Stack mm-hmm. uh, the co-founder of Square he talks about Jack Dorsey yeah. and, and the whole journey of uh, disrupting the credit card company the Visa yeah. and the MasterCards and so on and they found very little love uh, early on like you know didn't matter that you were Jack Dorsey and you had done Twitter and mm. so on just there was no takers you know and mm. uh, talk about how you're bracing yourself for this fact that you know there is physics involved in taking a seed and putting it under the earth mm. uh, for it to crack through the earth's crust and become a sapling mm. yes you might have a little bit more money and a little bit easier way to set meetings mm-hmm. and all these things I mean uh, money becomes a little bit easier. Meetings become a little bit easier. Mm. You have a little bit of uh, reputation for mm. starting a first one and doing well with it. 
But there's physics uh, involved in having the seed really crack through. And mm. Not all seeds crack through. You know? That's yeah, just yeah. classic Darwinism. Yeah. Uh, how are you bracing yourself for this second one? So I think the hardest thing about starting the second one that I've found is sort of building the right amount of conviction. Um, one of the things that I felt I could do better um, while we were building ThoughtSpot was sort of the balance between conviction and having your ears to the ground so that when the facts change on the ground, then you're adapting. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, without conviction, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. You, you can't actually... Um, sort of punch through the seed unless you have conviction. So this time I was very much determined to explore everything and learn everything and sort of absorb everything that I could before I say, this is it, this is where I'm planting the seed. And pretty soon I realized that if, if you try to do that, then this sort of analysis paralysis that mm-hmm. sets in mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> At some point, you have to take the leap of faith and say, I don't know all the answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet, I have enough conviction to bet a large amount of capital, some people's career, and your own reputation in there. Mm-hmm. Well, a large mm-hmm. part of it is also mm-hmm. learning along the way, right? Yeah. I mean, it's in situ as opposed to yeah. uh, doing it outside. And I mean, the process of even defining the problem, just like yeah. a PhD, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's equally true for company building. Like, yeah. uh, I remember when we quit our jobs in 2009 mm. to start Nutanix, uh, the earlier idea was to do this for secondary storage, mm. not for primary. Mm. And then within four or five months, there was enough conviction to go build yeah. this for primary. Yeah. Um, and while the the how, the why and the how were the same, you know, okay, distributed systems, mm. uh, data management, but the what had changed dramatically. Mm. It was mm. not secondary storage anymore, it was yeah. primary storage. And the what kept evolving. I mean, over the course of those 10 years, I remember the what kept evolving from uh, the use case, which was initially virtual desktops to server virtualization to remote office, branch office, to even technology where going from storage virtualization to compute virtualization to network virtualization. Mm. There were so many things we wanted to virtualize into your software. So the what kept evolving, but the Mm. why and the how stayed the same. The whole idea of uh, Nutanix was to make things extremely simple for the masses, for the have-nots, for the people who were spending their weekends mm. in these data centers trying to really go upgrade mm. software mm. and you know debug things and configure mm. things. And the how was all about distributed systems mm. um, being you know, shrink-wrapped into commodity hardware mm. and really do it in a way that you can rack, stack, mount, and cable and boom, everything just comes mm. up with mm. an Apple-like interface mm. uh, for infrastructure people mm. that had never seen anything close mm. in terms mm. of the user interface and mm. design and, and simple. Mm. I mean, we were known for being like extremely simple, delightfully mm. simple mm. in every workflow of the data center infrastructure. Mm. So the why and how never changed. It's mm. the what that kept evolving. Mm. And a mm. big fan of Simon Sinek, you know, mm. draws these circles, the start with why. Mm. And it's just one of those most obvious things that mm. most companies mm. actually don't. In fact, speaking of entrepreneurs uh, and entrepreneurship, a lot of people get too deep into the what. 
Hmm. Um, as opposed to saying the thing that really will outlast, uh, hmm. you know, every little competitor that's hmm. out there and so on. Hmm. Um, and the shifting sands of time is the why. Hmm. Hmm. And then the how. You know, hmm. These are the things that don't change. The what will keep evolving. Hmm. Hmm. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, no, I think uh, that's been our experience at ThoughtSpot too. Hmm. That the the why was that we're seeing people who have the business context um, to be able to make meaningful decisions disconnected from the people who have sort of the tools context. And we wanted to bring these words together. And uh, that hasn't changed from day one. The, the how and what has kept changing. We were on-prem, then we became cloud. We were building our own database, then we gave up on database. We were building DSLs. Now we're doing NLP on top of it. So all those things have evolved, but the, the why has not changed over the last and half years. How, how hard was it to change the how? Because that is the process of making the sausage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's... Because uh, what is easy, what yeah. keeps changing. Yeah. But the how itself is kind of the underbelly of the company. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think um, the first, the hardest thing, again, no surprise, is letting go. Right? Um, so when somewhere around 2017, 2018, we made the decision that we were going to send queries to other databases instead of our own database. We had this strong sense of pride and conviction in this distributed in-memory database that we had built and we had optimized the heck out of it. I remember the days when we would go chest thumping and saying we could go through a billion rows under 100 millisecond Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden say that that's not what is going to be differentiating about ThoughtSpot. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. only the top half of stack. It was very, very hard uh, because it was almost like changing our identity a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously the navigation was mm-hmm. not easy. Yeah. Are you then saying that the hardest part of our entrepreneurship is letting go? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's the sacrifice that one has to make. Yeah. For the board in hand. Yeah. There's a really good uh, thing that I bumped into three, four years ago. Mm. It's called the board in hand principle of entrepreneurship. Mm. It's like entrepreneurs make the best of what they have, mm. uh, the people they know and stuff like that. And it looks like that's really um, contrary to this idea of letting go. Yeah. yeah. Because letting go means you have to get let go of the board in hand yeah. uh, and then go for the two in the bush. Uh, I actually agree with you. Um, this thing about letting go is the mm. hardest part. Even for me, I think uh, 2020 COVID happens. Mm. And uh, I'm like, you know, what I've built with my team and, and I mean, what we basically did over those 11, 11 and a half, 12 years um, was a good $10 billion idea. Uh, but I'm like, where the world is headed, which is even more invisible, is mm. infrastructure that's been streamed from the web, yeah. you know, mm. from the internet. 
So it's even more invisible than mm. what we had thought we had built, which was invisible mm. infrastructure. Um, and the puck was moving in that direction, mm. you know. And entrepreneurship is a lot about where the puck is headed. So this is you talking about the decision to leave the CEO position at Nutanix and yeah. starting DevRel. Yeah. And by right. the way, the hard... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I, I just wanted to give context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the hard part there was uh, there's a creator and the creative in you, hmm. the designer and the architect and the builder, and then there's the investor in you. Hmm. So there is this kind of romantic sort of uh, uh, side of you and then there's an investor side of you. Hmm. It's like how you think of the idea of being an artist Hmm. and a capitalist Hmm. and basically decouple the two Hmm. Hmm. is the hardest part in all of this. Uh, In many ways, even when you're currently doing a job and never done a company Hmm. before, it's very similar, you know, mm. you think you have an artist in you, you think you can actually go build something mm. from scratch, but then there's a capitalist in you that's doing all the math to say, but what about my bank balance mm. and my children's future and mm. our mortgage and all this mm. stuff. And these two things are kind of together and you've got to really decouple them. Mm. That's what one had to do with Nutanix too. I'm like, mm. um, I'm a very service minded person Hmm. I love to serve Hmm. um, others Hmm. Uh, and uh, I think it's this uh, I feel like to sometimes my detriment I'm too empathetic you Mm -hmm. know and Mm -hmm. that empathy shows in customers and Mm -hmm. you know like I want to be liked Mm -hmm. I want to be respected Mm -hmm. um, by customers and employees alike uh, which we'll get to, by the way, yeah. being liked versus being respected. It's also a paradox yeah. in some sense. But I felt like with the public cloud, mm. you can actually serve better. Mm. You can stream better. You can upgrade twice a day rather than mm. twice a year. Mm. You can move faster. Mm. You know, and the pace of innovation, I mean, this cycle of creative destruction is shrinking mm. where mm. you got to go innovate faster. Mm. And I thought that the only way to do that is if you could actually operate hmm. the software hmm. that you deliver to our customers. Hmm. And that made it a whole lot simpler. I'm like, okay, hmm. I have 15 years left in me. I turned 45 in 2020. And hmm. I'm like, if I were to go and spend another 15 years, let hmm. me go and serve faster than what I have done in the past. You know, hmm. I think we were very good at innovating at Nutanix. Hmm. But at the end of the day, these were 20,000 customers, 30,000 sites you're at their mercy to upgrade software. Hmm, hmm, hmm. And there is a whole backlog because if they're not upgrading, hmm. you can't release. Hmm. If you can't release, you hmm. can't go write code. Hmm. And if you can't go write code, you can't go design, where hmm. the design board. Hmm. You know? So there's so much uh, backlog that actually accumulates hmm. that to, it became an, uh, uh, in many ways an easy decision, but also a tough one because I'm like, okay, uh, one has to go and really get into the arena again hmm, hmm. and the good thing is that the why has been elegantly similar to Nutanix hmm, hmm. the why of DevRev is exactly the way it was at Nutanix hmm. if anything we like okay left shifting a lot of the complexity hmm. doing it on our own you take the mundane and integrate everything on your own hmm. 
it was the genesis of AWS. Like, hmm. look, you know, data centers are hopelessly fragmented. There are server teams, storage teams, hmm. security teams, virtualization teams, networking, uh, database, and so on and so forth. And they said, look, let us just, you know, as if fire was discovered. And they said, hmm. look, we've discovered fire. I know you guys have been having raw meat hmm. all this time. Uh, and it takes forever to digest it in the intestines. But what if we really cook this meat and mm. you have cooked meat? Like Yuval Harari talks about this in Sapiens, yeah. about discovery of fire. And his conjecture is that, you know, before the discovery of fire, there was raw meat. And, mm. and there's only two big sinks of energy, the, the gut and the brain. Mm. But with the raw meat, you actually had longer gut, longer intestines. Uh, but after fire was discovered and you had cooked meat, you know, his conjecture is that uh, the intestine started to shrink because mm. you didn't need as long an intestine anymore and more energy started going to the brain mm. hence homo sapiens you know? mm. and I feel like that's equally true with uh, you know not just this idea of left shifting integration mm. where you're actually saying let us take care of the mundane mm. so that you have mm. you the customer have cooked meat mm. uh, and I think it's going to be true for AI as well you know mm. we'll talk about AI, like the way it was the internet, mm. there is cooked meat here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, which is just yeah. so exciting for yeah. starting a new company and doing it. Uh, say more about uh, that, you know, the idea that uh, AI is like discovering fire. Yeah. So I think it's it's been many years in making, right? Um, like the internet was yeah. 25, yeah. 30 years. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, internet allowed proliferation of data online, so much getting published that AI could consume. It also meant there was the right economy to support large amount of compute to be built and set up as cloud computing. And um, to be honest, I mean, um, all this investment that has happened in the space of AI was really funded by big tech giants because it helped them monetize internet better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that has led to a lot of the brilliant people who are today pushing the field. Mm -hmm. A lot of them cut their teeth in those big giants and, mm -hmm. and um, that, that space wouldn't be so rich without it. Mm -hmm. uh, but where we are right now, I feel like we are kind of just begun to see that using neural nets and transform architecture, you can do a little bit of reasoning, which wasn't possible before. Like all the earlier reasoning attempt was like through logic and symbolic computing, which was very fragile and not all that useful. Mm -hmm. But now we're seeing sort of the beginning of human brain-like reasoning. And I think over the next few years, that's going to get pushed so that you can have longer chains of reasoning that you can rely more on and there's less hallucination and less errors in that reasoning and, and that's just gonna make so much of sort of intellectual grunt work redundant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I want to ask you about uh, sorry to interject but this was burning question mm -hmm. in my head while you were talking mm -hmm. about people working for the big giants yeah so were they back in the 80s hmm. um, at AT&T, hmm. Lucent, hmm. IBM, hmm. and DEC. And they were hardcore networking people, hmm. operating systems people, hmm. uh, hardware people. 
But the folks who made the internet possible hmm. in the 90s were hmm. not those people. Hmm. I think it was people who were great at design, like, you know, Netscape was great at that. Hmm. Microsoft, for its time, was one of the best design-oriented companies. Hmm. After Steve Jobs, I think it was Apple. Hmm. So there's something to be said about product taste yeah. and design taste yeah. that really differentiated the young people hmm. who were actually outsiders to the world of networking and TCP IP hmm. and hmm. Um, you know, operating systems yeah. and, and so on. Say more about what will happen to AI because there's a lot of people who have gone through the big giants again. I mean, yeah. the AT&Ts and the Lucents and the decks of yeah. uh, the 80s and the 90s is basically what you see at Google's and Facebook's and so on. Yeah. Will there be that kind of uh, differentiation one more time? Yes, I, th- I definitely think um, that combining different disciplines is where sort of magic happens, right? Um, you were sharing the Steve Jobs quote before we started recording about how creativity is just connecting lots of diverse darts. You take the example of ChatGPT, right? Um, the, the instruction tune models existed for a little bit and nobody was paying attention. And somebody just put a little bit of a design twist on it and made it into a lot more usable app. And all of a sudden it caught fire and became sort of the most viral thing ever. Uh, so I, I don't think that just sort of raw AI will deliver the full potential we would have to bring the design thinking and sort of empathy for the user and understanding of use cases and pain. And when you combine those two things, that's when sort of the magic will happen within this era. And so there is hope for those who didn't work for the big giants in some yeah, sense. Yeah. Because looking back at the 90s, hmm. if anything, the outsiders won. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, Jeff Bezos was actually... Uh, more of a business guy mm-hmm. but he brought this idea and he learned a lot about mm-hmm. the internet he yeah. learned a lot about what uh, design meant for commerce yeah uh, but he was uh, actually working at D.E. Shaw <laughs> uh, as a, a business person mm-hmm. you know um, so the outsiders do have uh, something here too with AI as well I mean you know the fact that they're insiders in AI yeah and there's outsiders in AI, how do they bring that, I would call it monetization, which mm. is design and product and yeah. customer and end user thinking. Yeah. And also the mundaneness, like Jeff was maniacal about customer support. Mm-hmm. Like many people wouldn't give it a lot of thought. Like yeah. why customer support is like a, a, a checkbox. Yeah. But for him, it was design. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no questions asked, return anything you yeah. have and so on. And just the way they did all that. He learned yeah. about APIs. Like, mm. I don't think he knew what APIs <laughs> I'm sure they learned about HTTPS yeah. and, and yeah. trust and all this other stuff just yeah. as much. Looks like it will be about those who learn fast, yeah. even if they're outsiders. Yeah. And, and also... The, the whole movement towards big, large transformer models available as API has caused a big leveling uh, of the field as well, right? Um, it used to be that if you wanted to do anything interesting with deep learning, you needed a ton of GPUs and a lot of data and a lot of money. Now people are building crazy things on top of like available APIs or public LLMs and you don't really need to know that much about 
you know the theory of transformers and the theory of deep learning you could take some recipe find some interesting data and have an interesting um sort of idea around what problem needs to be solved and how you want to approach it i was just talking to one of the phd students at stanford who's pushing the envelope on robotics a lot and i was asking him like what is your day like and what do you work on and he was telling me that you know people think that like a lot of algorithmic stuff is what's pushing the boundary but right now what's holding back robotics is just data um so sort of the learning recipes for transformers are pretty well set it's just that there's not enough data to train the machines to be able to do the grasping and sort of fine motor manipulation kind of things mm-hmm. and he's spending a lot of time just sort of teleoperating robots and collecting data from that mm-hmm. which is similar to what steve jobs said in yeah. that creativity quote yeah. about life's experiences you know, yeah. data is life's experiences you know yeah. the more of those patterns that you see and you can feel it it's just fascinating you know yeah. um well uh this definitely is going to be about the outsiders i was mm. while you were talking mm. I was thinking about outsiders like physicists mm. going and really coming in as outsiders mm. to say what's the structure of the dna mm. you know there was enough geneticists and biologists mm. and people around that maybe in biochemists who mm. came out of this but the way physicists came in the 60s and mm. really said look this is the thesis on a double helix structure yeah. in the 15th 16th i think was at the core of uh, discovering the dna the, mm. the basic unit of life you know uh i am very passionate about you know outsiders coming in and doing mm. this and there's a really good book called the outsiders by the way that mm. i think the audience should read as well yeah. you know talks about these eight ceos and how they were the first time ceos they were outside from that industry they were mm. they never the insider in there mm. and they went and really disrupted uh, massive industries they consolidated they innovated um they you know saved a lot of capital they didn't mm. splurge capital they mm. did the right thing i think there's a great read about being mm. an outsider mm. um and i feel like uh there's an immense opportunity for entrepreneurship to really take because ai is going to be oxygen you know yeah. it's like you know it's going to be everywhere you know um, the question is how do you make money on it and mm. how do you really make it useful not just make money but mm. how do you make it useful for the mm. end user um I think at Devra we talk about these three layered cake you know there's mm. data mm. which is which is at the core of everything and that means data engineering mm. and really bringing things together and mapping things and so on and so forth and making sure that there's no loss of translation mm. as you bring all this data together mm. and the second layer is models mm. uh, where i feel like there'll be large language models on kind of the right brain mm. the probabilistic thinking computers but also the left brain of sql models is yeah. very important to actually have mm. deterministic uh, yeah. data structures that actually yeah. answer analytical questions that as we all know and maybe we should do a reading of that uh, mm. recent paper on mm. how uh, lms will take a long long time before they can displace databases but mm. in the sql model and the large language model at the second layer of the cake mm-hmm. but the third layer which is also the apps and the surfaces yeah. have to be redesigned because yeah. without that you know it's really hard to serve ai on a plate that's full of some other food you know yeah, it's yeah. like the dessert has to come in and eat actually <laughs> i mean what do you have to say about that like how do the apps 
uh, I mean, just like with on-prem software, mm-hmm. you couldn't retrofit cloud into it. Yeah, yeah. And just like with Unix, you couldn't yeah. retrofit distributed computing into it. Yeah, you know, yeah. Microsoft and Intel and Linux yeah. had to come to really change that. What do you have to say about the apps of the last 20 years and how they might or might not be able to redesign and retrofit AI? Yeah, so I think it comes at many different levels. So, so if, if you just look at the surface area, right, um, for last 20 years or so, it used to be that good design mostly means WYSIWYG, like what you see is what you get and you point and click and get to a thing that's so much easier than typing something on command line. But it's coming back to text, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's not at all obvious that, like some people will say that, like replace the UI with just chatbot interface, but that may not be the right thing either. Because language and text is really useful when you're addressing a large amorphous space, like searching through all of internet or searching through a huge array of menus. But for a lot of things, you do need that visual feedback and there's a small list and you want to manipulate that. and. Mm-hmm. You need that sort of skeuomorphic. I mean, it looks uh, like it goes back to your thoughts for yeah. initial idea of how search and the search bar and the search box. Yeah. We call it the space bar at mm-hmm. Dev. You know, the idea that natural language can drive a lot of interface. Say more about that because I think it's the 2012 idea that you guys mm. had is really becoming clearer that you could really teach a computer to take natural language and still mm. go talk to structured databases and yeah. come back with. A structured response yeah. you know, that required ten clicks before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really comes down to having sort of human-like intuition, right? Um, when you and I talk, we leave a lot of things unsaid because we have the common context, and you can fill in the gaps when I say something, and I can do the same. And for the longest time, our interaction with machines has been like you have to be precise and define exactly what you want the machine to do and that means that you have to click through 100 things give a lot of input and now what's happening is that there's a little bit of intuition behind that machine so you can leave a lot of things unsaid and we'll figure it out and then the question becomes that how do you make that interface high fidelity so that i understand that what i said was understood well and the machine is doing what I wanted without me having to specify everything. And I think a lot of sort of um, design evolution will happen in that where how do you build the trust between the human and the machine Mm -hmm. while the machine is making a lot of decisions on Mm -hmm. our behalf. You know, I I love the word context, by the way, right? what you just said. I mean, we've been using the word context in the world of programming for, mm. I don't know forever yeah. I remember CTX the, mm. the acronym for context which is everywhere session yeah. context and app context and all sorts of context the word context is very near and dear mm. to Mark Templeton who mm. is somebody that I've learned a lot from as well in the last 10 years he used to be the CEO of Citrix and, mm. and he actually comes from the design background mm. so he uses the word context like there's no tomorrow mm. Uh, and it's a very obvious term, but mm. it's such an important word. You know, maybe as a parting remark for our next episode, you know, setting context and mm. learning context for even people who want to quit jobs and, and start with small company, because that's mm. also entrepreneurial. Yeah. You know, at the yeah. end of the day, leaving a big company job, by the way, which is as risky as being in a small company, at least mm. in a small company 
uh, they have a face to the name. Everybody mm. knows you. you mm. They know your impact. Versus what has happened in the last year, where large companies have gone and really laid off people mm. on mass. You know, so risk-wise, if anything, working at a large company is no mm. less risky than working a small company. But when you take that entrepreneurial decision to come and work at a very small company, maybe mm. a third employee, the fifth, mm. or the tenth employee, is also equally entrepreneurial. Mm. Uh, you don't just have to be. A founder, you could be a founding mm. person, a founding team of the first mm. time. There's a lot of context that you need mm. to actually learn about. Mm. So maybe uh, a teaser for the next episode. Like, what do you think we would we should be talking about next time around for this uh, large population of people who just want to come and learn about entrepreneurship, mm. being having the front row seat of being the first 10, 15, 20 employee. Yeah, and I think as you and I were talking about it, from the outside, it's hard for someone to evaluate how to separate sort of startups that have high probability of success and the ones that are not set up for success. And what are the signals that you should look at to evaluate and sort of um, bound your risk if, if you're looking at joining a startup at early stage? And... I think a lot of interesting things come to mind. Um, some are more visible, like the, the history of the people behind the company and things like that. But th- th- there's a lot of sort of subtle things in there that we could talk about that could be helpful to someone who's trying to make that leap. So we can leave it at that and uh, take it, it up be, next be great. Week. I think uh, highly reflective because the way we did it. Like yeah. In 2007, I did it. Uh, and back in 2000, I did it. So I think it'd be great to talk about um, this idea of reverse interview. Yeah. And what does it mean to create that context for people to really go, you know, pull the trigger of uh, being entrepreneurial, you know. So with that, uh, thank you, Amit, for really doing this. Uh, this is inaugural. It's our first mm-hmm. one. Hopefully we were adding a little bit of meaning and a little bit of intrigue to Uh, our audiences lives today and uh, look forward to the next one yeah thank you so much for the partnership and yeah it will only get better from here hopefully thank you thank you everyone